Good evening. You're listening to WNUR News, 89.3 FM, HD1, Evanston, Chicago. I'm Brendan Preisman, and this is WNUR News at 6. Tonight, a new magazine acquisition has everyone wondering what's next. Students spill about shower time. And WNUR News' brand new podcast. Those stories and more coming up from Northwestern University. This is WNUR News at 6. We here at WNUR News are big fans of the L, and now we have a podcast all about the L, examining how it came about, how it operates now, and some of the issues it's dealing with. Here is a short preview of the first episode with Allison Rauch. There's no question that Chicago's elevated rail system keeps the city and suburbs moving. It's sort of an iconic image. Watch any movie or TV show set in Chicago and you'll probably see more than a few shots of the L. I didn't grow up with the L. I'm from Austin, a car-centric city that's only becoming more so. I guess that's why I've always liked the idea of public transportation as a tool for the community. By focusing on the Chicago L, I hope to learn how public transportation systems came to be, how they operate now, and how they're planning to operate in the future. And I wanted to share some of my findings. I'm Allison Rauch, and this is Elevating, like a new podcast here? series from WNR News. Episode 1, How Does the L Work? Mm-hmm. Before we dive in, let's get at least a little familiar with how the L came to be. Like many public transportation systems, what would become the L started developing just as Chicago was emerging as an important American city. Well, in each city, there were natural factors that influenced the course of events. Chicago being a major city, one of the larger uh, cities certainly in its time, with rapid growth in the late 1800s, developed a lot of congestion. That's David Sadowski a lifelong Chicagoan and a public transportation enthusiast. Sadowski has written several books on the Chicago L and maintains a blog called The Trolley Dodger dedicated to archival photos of public transportation systems. He also gives presentations for the public from time to time. Inspiration for the the inspiration for the electric L was this Columbia Intramural Railway at the World's Columbian Exposition. The first thing that happened was you had the development of what what were called horse car lines or omnibuses. There was uh, horse-drawn transportation and the first horse car line in Chicago was in 1859. Things like that were already happening in the east in cities like Boston and New York and Philadelphia. The, The next thing that sort of was more efficient than the horse car was the cable car. People today just associate cable car with San Francisco, but actually in the 1880s, a cable car system developed in Chicago that was actually larger than the the San Francisco system. The cable car system eventually got replaced by electric-powered streetcars. These forms of transportation were developing at the same time as the elevated rail systems. You had what's called a grade separation movement in Chicago where Uh, Because first, starting with the uh, World's Columbian Exposition in the 1890s, 
the idea was, well, there's going to be so many people going down to the site of the fair that the congestion is just going to be totally unmanageable. So the solution there was to uh, elevate the railroads and, and get them off of the street level. And that was the South Side L, which was the first elevator that we had. And it and the Lake Street L, which was the second private company to start an elevator, they began using steam, steam. So they had small steam locomotives to power those trains. And then uh, on the fair itself, there was sort of an electrical railroad with a, using a third rail. It was kind of like a demonstration railroad of the concept of what we have now. And that was called the Columbian Intramural Railway. So it was sort of like the proof of concept. Fast forward through decades of industrial development and the merging of various private companies, Chicago's public transit system ended up how it is today. In Chicago metropolitan area, there's commuter rail, there's rail rapid transit, and there's bus service. And those services are delivered by three different organizations. That's Joseph Schofer, Emeritus Professor of Civil and Environmental Engineering at Northwestern University. He explained more about how the Chicago Transit Authority was formed. The CTA is really the descendant of private carriers that were, that were in the market in from the beginning of the, the 20th century up until the, the late 1940s. They were in the business to make money, and they did make money for, for, for a, lo a long time. And when they stopped making money, the possibility was that they either were subsidized, okay, that, and we did that for a while, or that they went away, which would have been a problem for lots of res residents of the city, or that they that the government took them over. So the CTA is this marriage of, or adoption, if you will, of a bunch of private carriers into a, a unified system. Schofer touched on an always critical point for public transportation, funding. One of the things to remember is that these lines are not pro profitable. No public transit system in the United States is profitable. Yeah, you might find a tiny little piece here or there, but very unlikely. Maybe the New York subway system is because they have a lot, a lot of a lot of riders. But everything else is subsidized. If you stop subsidizing them, they would just go away. So why do we subsidize them? Because society has decided that the service is really important, and so we're willing to, to, to share the cost of it. Anything you buy in Cook County, you'll pay a 1% sales tax. This goes to the Regional Transportation Authority, or RTA. This organization funnels the money back out to the CTA, as well as Metra and PACE. But what's really important about it is that the transit operators in this region have a certain source of money that they know that's going to come in so they can plan and, and, and manage with that. We could argue that that isn't enough and we could have that dis discussion. Okay, we can always do that. But we have this regular built-in source of funding that we agreed on in the 70s, in the, in the 1970s. So that's really good, a good thing. Even though the CTA can rely on money coming in, it's expensive to maintain a rail system. Schofer estimated that the CTA covers a little less than 50% of costs from fares, with the subsidy helping to make up the rest. But it's still a challenge, especially on the fare side. The market, which was this big, you can't see it, which was, which was let's say 100 units, 100%. The market is like 50 or 60% of what it used to be. So at the end of the day, they're counting money that goes into the fare box and they're comparing it to their costs, which turns out didn't go down because for the most part, they didn't cut back service. So they're looking at a situation where 
they're going to have to make massive cuts or they're going to need more money. The market for public transportation has decreased for various reasons, but the COVID-19 pandemic was a big one. When I was getting into the transportation business, which was many decades ago, there were people who were poking around saying, you know, someday communication is going to be so good that we won't need to travel. And people did research on it, make all kinds of predictions. And it was a bunch of, I don't know what you can say this on your radio, but it was a bunch of crap. It wasn't true. It didn't happen. The technology came and, and, and it didn't really make any, any change. Then something came along called COVID. With quarantining and the switch to online events, ridership was bound to be affected. Prior to the pandemic, the CTA was carrying roughly 1.5 million customers on an average weekday. Then came the pandemic and that ridership plunged uh, more than 80%. Uh, we dropped down to about 250,000 uh, daily rides. That's Brian Steele, Vice President of Communications and Marketing for the CTA. Steele said that ridership today has risen to about 900,000 on an average weekday. So while that's way up from the peak of the pandemic, it's still a far cry from pre-COVID numbers. You know, transit ridership doesn't occur in a vacuum. Transit ridership is a function of what's going on in larger society. You know, prior to March 2020, there really wasn't this thing called work from home. And as we've seen, multiple industries now have hybrid work schedules for their workers. So instead of taking public transit five days a week to and from the office, uh, some workers are taking it three days a week. Some workers are taking it two days a week. Some are taking it one day a week. So that's certainly going to have an impact on ridership. But beyond the work commute, I think there's some other societal factors that uh, are, are factoring in, into transit ridership. I think a lot of people's daily routines and how they approach their uh, transportation and mobility has changed. Those missing riders mean that the CTA is still figuring out how to continue operations with a significant chunk of their budget gone. But Steele says that another concern is labor. Even before the pandemic began, the CTA was starting to see some challenges in, frankly, having enough workers to operate our trains and buses. Then the pandemic hit, and we saw the impacts that many industries had about the Great Resignation, about people switching careers. We also saw significantly increased competition uh, from other marketplace uh, transportation uh, and uh, like delivery company providers. Right. Operators who normally would want to drive a CTA bus were now getting these big bonuses and uh, signing bonuses and incentives from the likes of UPS and FedEx and things like that. So we saw a lot of marketplace competition. The challenges of a reduced workforce are something that three years after the pandemic, we are still addressing. Steele said that although the CTA has been successful in filling vacancies on the bus side of operations, rail has been more complicated. Rail continues to be a challenge. Rail operations is really where we're seeing the biggest challenges in hiring, and not surprisingly, where we're seeing the biggest challenging in service. Um, let me say it this way, our rail service is not where we want it to be, and not where it should be, and not what our customers deserve. Lack of labor can mean fewer or less frequent trains. This affects customer experience, which in turn can affect ridership and fares. It's sort of a complicated cycle, but the bottom line is always the money. We'll talk more about issues with the L, as well as challenges it's facing in a future episode. Next episode, we'll talk about who the L is serving 
and how it plays into Chicago from a customer perspective. And we always talk about the choice riders in, in, in the policy process because on environmental grounds, you know, so if I can get you out of your car and onto the train, it's better the, for the environment. But but you're not a captive rider. Why is it that the south, far south side of Chicago is the only part of the city that does not have rail service? Thanks for listening to Elevating. For WNUR News, I'm Allison Brown. Men's Style and Culture magazine GQ acquired music outlet Pitchfork recently, causing an uproar amongst music fans and journalists. As we continue to navigate the increasingly fraught entertainment journalism landscape, many wonder what the future holds for publications like Pitchfork and their loyal readers. Sidney Feener and Cara Totley have the story. Music nerds and journalism geeks alike were devastated to hear the news this month that GQ had acquired Pitchfork, a prominent outlet for music coverage. On January 21st, cultural juggernaut Condé Nast announced that Pitchfork would be absorbed into their increasingly holistic men's magazine, GQ. This merger left many wondering what the future of music journalism would look like, from readers to contributors. I sat down with longtime Pitchfork reader and contributor Daniel Bromfield to hear his thoughts about the recent merger and what made Pitchfork a distinct voice in music journalism. I mean, I think they have high standards. I think they have good writers. Um, still do have a lot of really incredible writers. And generally, you know, I find it much more you know, sort of gratifying to read something from Pitchfork than from a lot of other publications, just I think because they have real, really high standards and higher really incredible writers um, like Megan Garvey or like uh, Sam Goldner. Pitchfork's amplification of critical voices such as the ones Bromfield mentioned added to the publication's unique attributes. The generous rate of pay also made Pitchfork a rewarding place for which to write. First I was making 150 per review and 200 for like a headline review. Then it was 200 uh, for like a non-headline and 300 for headline review, which is amazing because most review places don't pay anything. Bromfield went on to explain that the future is looking murky for Pitchfork writers like himself and for the industry as a whole. I mean, they used to publish five reviews a day, then it became four, then three, and now it's looking like two or three. Um, well, they have not really made clear to me what the long-term future is going to be. A lot of people had the same... You know, they express the same reservation. It doesn't look good, though, and, you know, it does seem very bleak for music journalism. I mean, it's kind of... I feel like it's in a little bit of a crisis right now, not just because publications are going away, but also, like, you know, I think now that streaming exists, there's not quite as much, you know, demand for someone to tell you, you know, how music sounds before you buy it. Northwestern professor Patty Walter, who has extensive experience in the field of journalism, having spent over a decade in the magazine industry, echoed some of Bromfield's sentiments. In some ways, I like to say that magazines are kind of like restaurants. They're always starting and folding. Um, but right now, like in the last month, month and a half, it feels like we've had a huge amount of layoffs in media across the board, whether you're looking at glossy magazines or um, magazine-like properties and our websites. So we're, we've hit a pressure point. 
a pressure point that resulted in the roughly 400 members of the Condé Nast Union deciding to go on a 24-hour strike on January 23rd in New York City. The movement to unionize magazines is relatively young, and I think it's in part been very much a reaction to the contraction of the industry and trying to create some fairness for workers in that environment. Condé Nast only recently became a public union in June of 2018, with Pitchfork later joining the union in March 2019. To gain a better understanding of the purpose of unions and why a one-day strike would cause such a stir, I reached out to someone who knows a lot more about unions than me. My name is Carson Brown. I'm a campaign lead at the News Guild, CWA, our parent union of the Communication Workers of America. Typically how unions form in the media industry is that a group of workers will be talking to each other and motivated by what they see going on either in the industry writ large or within their workplace itself will then reach out to us or to another union potentially um, and ask a organizer here or a rep or a representative um, here how they can go about forming their union and that's when we uh, assign folks out to help them do that work. The strike comes months after Condé Nast announced they would lay off about 5% of workers, translating to roughly 300 people losing their jobs, resulting in negotiations between the union and the company to go awry. However, the journalism industry is not known for its job security, and layoffs happen quite often, partly due to the narrative that print is a dying form. Brown, however, had a pushback for this rhetoric. Layoffs and lack of job security have almost nothing really to do with profitability and have entirely to do with how management has decided their bottom line needs to look at the beginning of the next quarter or the next fiscal year. So like that's something that like I think people can understand and like know that that is true across all industries. And we know for a fact that newspapers are really profitable. That's why these employers can like buy up papers, decimate the newsrooms, sell off all of their resources and make a huge profit. Um, we know that that's what's going on, and this is kind of like part of journalists fighting back about against it. Hence, the union decided to go on strike. But why for only 24 hours? When it comes to a one-day work stoppage, very often this is a display of solidarity and a display of force that the union can say, we have the ability to move en masse and we have the ability to... Um, you know, show that like this work depends on us. You can't do this work without us. And that's the message of a one day essentially. Despite sending this message, it doesn't change the fact that the merger is happening and many Pitchfork writers and editors have lost their job. Meaning Pitchfork writers will have to find a different space to garner music analysis. RTVF sophomore James Lee said that he reads Pitchfork because of their album reviews unique focus on the background behind music. You're good at they're good at context in their reviews. And like, I'm a sucker for good context. Like, it's not, because ultimately, a good piece of criticism and analytical writing is not about the product itself or like the artwork itself. Um, it's about everything that's led to its creation. It's about everything that's occurring in its periphery, as well as the artwork itself, you know? It, it does enhance your understanding of a piece if you know what led up to it. Okay. So, like, I just, I like seeing that stuff. I think that is one of their better advantages. Lee, a film critic, described the trends he observes in the current media landscape around criticism. Well, it's all clicks-based, right? Like, that's the thing about it. It's like, and like, we're seeing that grow. We're seeing that grow as a means of drawing in more clicks. We're seeing 
um, a, like a lessening in priority of like people who actually care materially and artistically about the stuff they're covering. Um, it's a bleak situation, but at the same time, it's like there is full awareness that people are fighting it. Things have become a lot more democratized, but that means there are more opportunities for people to basically become expendable in the process. And I think seeing that as obviously not very encouraging as someone who has an interest in entering that space, but it's also at the same time, like, you know, people will do anything to get a profit and mergers like this are evidence of that and layoffs like this are evidence of that. Um, and, you know, that craving for profit comes at the expense of genuine voices who care about what it is they're, what it is they're covering. While this can all seem very discouraging for music lovers and readers of entertainment journalism, Bromfield indicated some areas where he sees the industry moving in a new and positive direction. But, you know, I'm actually a little bit optimistic as well, because I think that the demise of Pitchfork might really bring other music journalists who are trying to start independent things kind of into hyperdrive because, you know, I think Pitchfork kind of had a little bit of a monopoly on music reviews. Um, you know, people go to Pitchfork. Um, so that kind of makes me think that maybe there's going to be something to fill this void. For WNUR News, I'm Sydney Fenner. And I'm Cara Totley. When do you like to shower? Students, especially those who live on campus, are debating what time of day is best for the daily practice of routine. Rachel Spears has the story. For most students, showering is a key part of their daily routine. Maybe it's because they work out every single day, maybe it's because they need to shower as a part of their wake-up process, or maybe it's because showering can serve as a great way to decompress at the end of a stressful day. Whatever the motivation is, showering is a pretty typical part of most students' routines. But when exactly does that part of the routine happen? For the students we talked to, showering time was never until well after lunch. Always at night. Every single day. That's Alicia Huang, a sophomore in the school of Kong. Huang says that showering at night is a necessity because of what happens throughout the day. You don't want to be sleeping in all that dirt that you get throughout the day, right? You go outside, there's dirt, there's germs, outside germs on you. And then you go home, and if you don't shower at night, you're just going into bed, all of the outside germs, you're like marinating in the germs, and then you wake up next morning, and it's like, okay, you shower in the morning, but then like, you're just gonna go outside and do stuff, and then become dirty, and then you're gonna go home and marinate in more germs. While that image is a bit strong, and rather disgusting, it's a pretty common sentiment on campus. Most people we talked to said that it made more sense to shower at night to get the residue of the day off their bodies. It just doesn't make sense to them to bring all that dirtiness of the day into a clean bed. Not only is that a bad way to end the day, it's a horrible way to start the next one, Sydney Chan, a freshman in the school of comms, says. She usually showers late at night after she's done studying. While it's not the studying that provides the contamination of the day, that contamination can still be felt quite easily. I just feel like after all of my day's activities, I'm really dirty or filthy from just sweating and sometimes because I'm a dancer, I roll around on the floor um, and so my hair and rest of me gets just really, just feels gross and I feel like I can't go to sleep and just roll around in my bed 
feeling dirty all night and then waking up and feeling super gross. And with the busyness of her day, Chan is basically forced to shower at night. During the day is classes, dance, and studying. That means that the time spent in the dorm is limited to getting up in the morning and coming back at night to sleep. That explains why. Uh, I usually take a shower at night. But what about those who do have more time to get back to their dorm and wash off the day? Jack Sokol is a sophomore in McCormick who hardly ever showers in the evening. Much like those people who choose to shower at night, Sokol's shower's time is much more of a matter of convenience. Yeah, so I normally have class that ends around 2 every day, and then I will go to SPAC, work out, and shower afterwards. That normally puts Sokol's showering time somewhere in the... Say mid-afternoon, so... But why at that point of the day? If classes end at 2 every day, surely Sokol has plenty of time in the evening to shower. But it's not about when the showers are free, it's about when the gym is. Sokol says that going to work out right at 2 is the most perfect time for him, because that's when he gets to go to SPAC. It's almost always empty. In summary, days at Northwestern can be long, busy, and very dirty. For most people, that results in a nighttime shower. For others, it's a shower after their workout ends, whenever that may be. But the one thing that most people had in common is that they never showered right after they woke up. As for me personally, I could never do a shower right after waking up. It would just give me a dirty feeling, in more ways than one. For WNUR News, I'm Rachel Spears with Brendan Preisman. The world of pop culture brought fights, broken records, and new movies last week. Jessica Watts will get you all caught up with this week's B-List. Welcome to the B-List, your weekly roundup of celebrity mess in pop culture. This week, the Grammys, Bob Marley's new biopic, and the Golden State Warriors. First, Megan Thee Stallion and Nicki Minaj have continued their feud this week through new drama surrounding Megan's new song, Hiss. Listeners speculated a line in the song regarding Megan's law was aimed to be a diss at Nicki Minaj. Minaj responded with her own diss by writing Bigfoot a song claimed to be about Megan Thee Stallion. In music, Taylor Swift announced her 11th original studio album, The Tortured Poets Department, will be released on April 19th, just seconds after winning her 13th Grammy Award for her 10th studio album, Midnights. The album is rumored to have 17 tracks. Also at the Grammys, Billie Eilish won Song of the Year for What Was I Made For? Victoria Monet took home the coveted Best New Artist Award, and Miley Cyrus earned her second Grammy when she took away Record of the Year for her song Flowers. Taylor Swift won Album of the Year for Midnight's, becoming the first person to ever win Album of the Year four times. Ariana Grande continues teasing her seventh studio album, Eternal Sunshine, which is set to debut on March 8th. The album will have four different covers and 13 tracks, including the newly released hit single, Yes And. Up next in movies, Bob Marley's biopic, Bob Marley, One Love, hits theaters next week on February 14th. Starring Kingsley ben as Marley himself, the movie tells the story of the musician's rise to fame while overcoming adversity and his devotion to spreading love and unity through reggae music. The cast of Dune Part 2, went on Jimmy Kimmel Thursday night to promote the new film ahead of its March 1st release date. The all-star cast includes Zendaya, Timothy Chalamet, and new additions Florence Pugh and Austin Butler. 
This long-awaited sequel was originally slated to hit theaters in November 2023, but was delayed due to the Hollywood strikes. In sports, Golden State Warriors point guard Stephen Curry earned a season-high 60 points in a game against the Atlanta Falcons Saturday night, only two points short of his career high. He joins the late Kobe Bryant as the second player to earn as many points aged 35 or older. The number three North Carolina Tar Heels defeated the number seven Duke Blue Devils to 93-84 in an epic battle Saturday night. The decades-long rivalry between the two schools has long taken college basketball by storm, this year giving Harrison Ingram and Armando Baycott bragging rights and the Tar Heels' 18th win of the season. That's all for the B-List this week. Check in next Monday to hear about what happens this week in pop culture. For WNUR News, I'm Jessica Watts. And now for a brief look at the forecast. Tonight, the temperature will remain in the mid to low 30s. Overcast skies and mild winds are expected. Tomorrow, it will be partly cloudy with a high of 45 degrees and a low of 32. Luckily, it will start to warm up in midweek. Wednesday has a projected high of 47 degrees, although it still appears cloudy. While temperatures will be in the 50s later this week, the overcast skies are expected to hang around. Well, that's all the time we have for WNUR News at 6 p.m. For more news updates and reports, follow us on X or Twitter at WNUR News and Instagram at WNUR News 89.3893. You can listen to these stories and other WNUR News stories on our website, WNURnews.org. That's WNURnews.org. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Our producer today is Jesse Chen, and our reporters are Allison Rout, Sydney Fenner, Cara Totley, Jessica Watts, Rachel Spears, and myself. I have been Brendan Preisman. Catch our next newscast Wednesday, February 7th. Now, back to scheduled programming.